it's time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Hey guys, welcome to the show. JT, how are you? I'm good, GB. It's good to see you. Doc, how are you? I'm just appreciating the Southern California living and weather. And (laughs) I feel like as I get older, it's funny, you'd think, because I grew up in in L.A. My dad used to just go off about it because he's from Newark, New Jersey. So, you know, he would always say that the, the, the single most, this was, of course, you know, when I was growing up back in the 70s, he'd say the single most profound, like, event that has changed the migration patterns in the United States is the Rose Bowl. Okay. Because he basically said that, like, all these people on the East Coast would be freezing their butts off in January, and there was the Rose Bowl. On TV. And they'd all see these, these you know, folks in California in T-shirts, and they're like, all right, we're going. That's funny. And they'd all go out there. There's and probably some scientific According to my to dad, that. he said that was it. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, I just spent last week on the East Coast. Lovely time with my family. And side note, at least five people in my family said, so when's the next episode of Two Men and a Doc? It was, they were very, and, and including a few family friends. So um, so it's good to see you guys. I, I get a fair amount of, of uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I will say somewhat um, with, uh, with a little remorse that I didn't really put up like posters or any kind of advertisements about it, if that's what you would call it, like notifications about it in my office until the last, like, six months. Um, Actually, it was more like a year ago you did that. Maybe it was a year ago. You with gave the, with the logo? Yeah. 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 JT put yeah. those up yeah. for me, or uh, he gave them so, to me, and I put them up. Yeah. And so now I get a lot of patients that tell me that they're listening. <laughs> they're and then recently I told you guys, I, I was telling you guys just a few days ago that, you know, we get these uh, pharmaceutical or not even, like, they're reps from various... Um, uh, some of them are equipment reps, pharmaceutical reps, or a new type of test. In this case, it was for like detection of bladder cancer, and she brings things to us. And um, well, she was hawking other type of equipment. No, as no, well. she wasn't hawking anything. She, I saw that picture. She of... was doing that purely for informative purposes, and she even <laughs> offered to phone in and talk to us about it. But she was listening to the episode we did on the on the guy with the cock ring, and that we had to Got you know stuck. what's that episode called. Uh, the things, the things people, do. people do, the things people do. And she wanted me to know that she has been, you know, with a, a partner friend of hers and they use something that's far less dangerous, but equally satisfying. And I said, wow, I, you know, I, I don't know. And she had the product with her in a box. She bought one for us. I, mean, I meant to bring it, but she bought, brought You're one. Sure she silicon. It's a it. silicon. It's like a silicon donut. That he wears, and she says he swears by it. It makes it much more pleasurable. So wow. I was like, all right. For him or for her? I, I think for him. Episode? I think she, that's, our, that's our future episode. We'll have her call in and tell us about <laughs> I it. I don't know. I'm, it's, first of all, it's episode 56. For those interested that want to go back, I'm, I'll just go on record right now. The, the thought of all the questions GB will ask that's true. this guest. That's true. We, uh, those who are familiar with the show it's and know GB by now, it, it may be overwhelming. Although I, I have it to... It may be overwhelming. I do have to say this in GB's defense. This was an email that we got. This is a real email. I think okay. I sent it to you guys. And I, I never asked either of you if, if we know this gentleman, but he just wrote in, quote, as a re- this was the entirety of the email, by the way. As a recent devotee, I can't get enough of GB and his zingers, exclamation point. (laughs) That's great. I didn't know about that. That's fantastic. If I didn't know already that GB is not the most technically savvy, I would think that he might have, like, you know, spoofed his name and sent it in himself. (laughs) So possible. But it was real. That's possible. Oh, man, that's good stuff. And I also was afraid to send it to him for the, uh, you know, the... The That's validation great. that he's now gotten, but I was so we were back east and it was hot and humid and you know certainly beautiful to be back there. But we got home last night and I almost wanted to put a lawn chair out, just on on LAX's you know horseshoe, um, you know th- roadway because it was so pleasant. Just walking out of the airport, I was like, "Oh my God, this yeah, is it's so hard great. to hard to hear anybody say anything pleasant about LA." Just, so just that's, the uh, that's just amazing. the dry, cool air yeah. it was so nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, well, sorry for you guys here. who aren't in LA that are listening to the show. That we're we're making you all, you know, feeling bad about not being here. <laughs> it's but, like being uh, on vacation, living here. Hop it's on a plane, beautiful. come on out. I do. Re- we were on the Chesapeake Bay. We went to Annapolis. I, That's I, it nice. Was, it was a beautiful time. That's so. nice. That's very nice. So we are back on, uh, and good to have you all with us. Um, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes, as I always ask you to do. Um, a couple um, couple topics we wanted to discuss today. First, we have, before I, so I don't forget, there was a follow-up you had on our last episode. Um, we talked about a few things. Um, I recommend going back and checking out, but one of them was just the, the issue of chronic UTIs. Urinary tract infections. With, with women and yep. what, cause, what might cause it and how to deal with it. It was a relatively in-depth conversation that GB was, you know, squirming a little bit on, but informative nonetheless. But you came in and said you've got some follow-ups on this. Well, it's interesting because um, I what I was telling you guys is that I'm going through um, a board recertification right now. So the Americ every major you know field of medicine, even internal medicine, and then of course any specialty, dermatology, you know, cardiac surgery or cardiology or whatever, they have their own board certifications um, that you know that doctor is up on the latest and greatest of that field, and you have to recertify. Usually it's every 10 years. Um, and it's interesting because I, I'm guilty of this myself, but I would say 90%, 99% of folks that see a doctor, they probably don't even bother to check if, if their doctor is current on their board certification because it's not a requirement. You, you don't have to be board certified hmm. to practice. Um, but GB has told us he advisable. checks the diplomas on the wall. That's true, GB. That's true. You <laughs> does do a lot do of that. research. Now it's GB's going to have his phone. He's going to he's right. going to dial in the board of that <laughs> specialty and see if that doctor's name is on there as currently boarded. You can also look up uh, medical licenses to see if there's been any complaints or citations. That is true. Actually, you know that's a new rule that just came out this year that we as doctors in the state of California have to post either in the admission paperwork for the practice or in a frame in the waiting room, how patients can look up. Um, actually, it's, I don't think it's licensing. It's, it's, I think it's to look up whether you, how much money you've received in benefits from pharmaceutical companies. Wow. So, like, for instance, probably, money. I would say once a week, they... Like we, lunch. We get, like, a lunch... From some, and you rep- have to put a value to that, and then, and then they have to they have to track the value of how much money they have spent on us by detailing us about that medication. Is it's that a latex ring? Did you disclose top, that? You uh, that I did not disclose. <laughs> wouldn't it be that funny? Was off the record. <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if, if if what was framed on the wall it said like two corned beef sandwiches? <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, or on the website, it was <laughs> yeah. like you know, Everything. Dr. Hyman on you know July first. <laughs> yeah, two corned beef sandwiches and, and a hot dog. A turkey club. Um, so so let me ask a question about that because if you do a surgery in a surgery in a surgery center that you happen to own a part of, is there a disclosure on that? You are supposed to disclose that. That's a separate issue. But if you do um, have somebody uh, schedule a procedure at a surgery center um, in which you have a share of ownership, you are supposed to disclose yeah. so it. So I used to see an orthopedic, and they, and they owned a portion of a physical therapy practice and were referring all the patients to the physical therapy practice and not disclosing. Yeah, and I think, and I think that was to. an issue. Yeah, they're supposed to So do they that. stopped. Yeah, they're supposed to do that. You're supposed to disclose it. Anyway, um, so this the, is getting back to the board certification. And the follow-up. Um, that yeah. was a, an aside. Um, the board certification. So um, historically, in most fields, including urology, you would take this exam every 10 years. Um, and the exam, as I was explaining to you guys before we started the show, was always incredibly, like, obscurely written because the folks writing these exams were academics. So, like, if you're sort of an academic urologist who specializes in, you know, hypospadius at the Department of Urology and, you know, and wherever, you know, the University of Michigan. What's, what's hypospadias? Right. It's like an obscure condition that most people in general practice like me never see. It's a pediatric condition. Um, and um, but you have to know it for these board exams. Condition of what? It's a it's a condition of development of the penis where the opening, the urethral meatus, 
instead of at the very tip of the penis, it forms partway down. So like it could be a glandular hypospadias, which means the opening is like behind the head, right at where the head and the shaft of the penis yeah, we've join. we've talked about this. We have talked about this. Yeah. Or it could be a scrotal hypospadias, which is like the opening is down in the scrotum. So you can't get anybody pregnant if that happens. And it's hard to urinate if that happens. Right. Anyways, they might ask some really obscure question about the how you do the operation to fix that. Well, I've never like had to do that in my entire career. It goes to a pediatric urologist. But these exams would expect you to relearn all those things. And it just was kind of irrelevant. So they would be very obscure. So they've, they've started a pilot program now where you can pick like eight topics that you want to be tested on. And then they will give you the article, like, you know, 30-page articles on each of these topics that you read. And then they'll, you'll take the test for each of those subjects. So I picked eight topics because um, I'm, I'm on the pilot program. I got, it, it was like a lottery. It was a lottery that you could sign up to try to get into Is the this just program. for urologists or for other In specialties case, as well? It's just the American Board of Urology is pi- okay. piloting this. Yeah. I don't know if other fields are doing this, but they are. They tend to be ahead of the game when it comes to piloting new concepts. So I, I have to, you know, nod my, you know, give them a nod for that. I think they do a good job. So anyway, one of the topics I chose was recurrent urinary tract infections, which sounds kind of dry and obscure, not obscure, just kind of boring and like, who cares? But I see a lot of patients who come in, women who are referred to me because they have, or they've self-referred to me because they've had recurrent UTIs. And we talked about it the last episode. But what I came up with in this recent reading is that some of the things that I, I, I may have mentioned in the last episode that I always thought were sort of the typical things you want to talk about are no longer really true based on studies. And one of the things was hygiene. We used to tell women, and I think women listening to this show would say, oh yeah, I always wipe uh, front to back, not back to front. And I always uh, urinate right before, right after I have sex and um, various things like this that um, we would say like, yeah, those are things you should do. Well, no study has shown that to be useful. That women who have recurrent UTIs, among and when they divide them into two groups and they tell one not to do that and they tell the other to do it, it makes no difference in the rate of recurrence. There, there are two major things that help that they have found. One is um, using barrier contraceptives. So that means... Wait, is that right? Oh, i got to remember if I'm right about this. Uh-oh. No, no, no. Sorry. It's not going to pass. It's the, yeah. It's, it's going to av- be the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Two it's men av- and a former doc. Yeah. It's the... It's the avoid... It's, it's, um, it's changing your contraceptive. That's what it is. So you need to... For example, um, spermicides, particularly condoms with spermicides, can increase your risk of recurrent infections. And I think they said the reason has to do with the fact that the spermicide will change the flora, the type of bacteria, and so it will introduce more resistant bacteria. And then the other one is, this was the one that really surprised me, very significant. I'm sorry, so you should use a condom without spermicide? You should use a condom without spermicide. There is also the potential that condoms themselves can increase your risk, too. Um, and I think part of that just has to do with the fact that um, they didn't really explain why, but I think the reason has to do with the fact that the latex is causing um, maybe certain... Uh, it's, it's causing a greater introduction of bacteria that's going up through the urethra and into the, into the bladder. Does lambskin... Land, don't, they didn't talk about that. They mm-hmm. didn't talk about that. But what they also talked about, this was the big one that really surprised me, water intake. Just drinking water. Too little. So they, they found that women who drink less than 1.5 liters per day who have recurrent urinary infections can, like, reduce their rate of recurrent urinary tract infections if they, like, double their water intake by, like, 80%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really substantial. Wow. Yeah, so it's really substantial. So almost three liters of yeah, water. Yeah, That will really reduce their infection rate. Um, and then what was the other thing? I what about beer? About? Which really just means they're just increasing their urinary flow. I think what it is is that they're, they're diluting what's going on inside their bladder. Like, if you're, if you're dry, meaning you're, you're, you're not having enough volume, and 
let's say you had sex and we all we talked about this the last time when you're having sex if you're a woman then you know a repeated entry of this object in your vagina namely the guy's penis is pushing every time it's pushing bacteria up into the urethra and into the bladder but if she hasn't had much to drink if she, if she hasn't had much to drink then she's not going to have urine in that bladder that's enough to empty that bladder for two or three hours. So, so are you suggesting that so people should drink a lot, a lot of beer before having sex? I'm suggesting they just drink fluid to increase their urine output because that will wash out the bladder and prevent infections. So that's, that's right. the deal. So that was something that I thought was interesting. Yeah. There was some other stuff in there. Oh, cranberry. I think I even talked about this in the last show, and I was kind of wrong about this. That I think I you was, said it wasn't. Effective. And actually, it's one of these things where they're leaning towards saying that that it is no, probably it is. helpful. Actually, mm. it is. No, most studies that goes do back. Show, for it's as long not as substantial, forever. but it does help. It's better than they. It, it you know, like for example, um, it's not quite as good as if like the doctor said if you had a really severe problem where you just keep getting infections every month. You're one of those women who gets an infection like. Every month, so you're looking at antibiotics ten times yeah, a year. That's a you're, it's a real problem, and you're going to end up with recurrent, with resistant bacteria. And you talked about women being on a low dose of antibiotics all the time, which I, which which I will do for some women. Yeah. Correct, but if you're one of those people where it's more like you're getting like four or five recurrent infections a year, um, um, or six, then cranberry is a good one because it will usually cut it down by like a third. Wow. It will cut it down by a third. So then you'll get like two a year, and that's not as big of a problem. Mm. And you can and and you can do tablets or you can do the the liquid the, the drink. Although they they acknowledge in the article that the drink can cause more you know frequent and urgent. What's urination. a cranberry tablet? It's like a it's like a pill that has concentrated cranberry. It's mm. like freeze dried cranberry. So you take the pill, you don't drop it in water, right? At Thanksgiving, can you use that for... There you go. There you go. <laughs> Just to make things easier? Yeah. Okay, and then I was going to talk to you guys about um, a, something that I was asked about just in the past week, um, which was, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but um, I was asked about a, um, a young guy, 16 years old, who's a patient of a colleague of mine, an internist, and the internist called me and said, hey, I have this 16-year-old who um, I examined him, and he's missing a testicle. He was born with a missing testicle. Okay, so it didn't Have just we ever go. Talked about it that? didn't just go rogue. It was always you missing. Mean it didn't descend. It's just missing. Correct. It, well, we don't know if it didn't descend or it didn't form, and that's the key there. Mm -hmm. So that there's a special name for that. There's a special name for that diagnosis or that condition, and we call it one ball cryptorchidism. Cryptorchidism. That's a whole, that's so a terrible what is, name. What is what is the root crypt, crypt wait, I, wait, I, okay. crypto mean? Something's cryptic. What does that mean? Oh, um, well, if something's cryptic, it's uh, hard to decipher. It's it's unknown. Unknown. Okay. Unknown. So you so so it's really a hidden testicle, or maybe absent. We don't know. Orchidism. Orchio is referring to the testis. It could be floating around somewhere, right? It could be inside the body. When, we when, don't know. When when do those typically drop? They don't quote me on this, but it's in the last trimester, um, and exactly when in the last trimester of human development? But I it's can't in the womb that it, that it comes correct. out. Correct. So not. when you're born, you should have two descended testes. Right. And it is is it possible that for some people uh, that it doesn't happen until their fifties la later <laughs> in, in you know childhood? Mm, it's a good question, and you're starting to you know, challenge my memory as far as my memory when it comes to pediatric Well, urology. I got a call from the board right before the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe that it's considered... So if, if you have a newborn who's missing a single... First of all, this is another, a longer topic, which I think we've addressed. If you have a newborn who's born without both testes, that's a very special situation where you have to actually consider, even if they have, will have what looks like yeah, a yeah. penis, they actually may have a, what's called a um, uh, a mixed, what's it called? Um, like a, the gender is uncertain. Sure. You don't know if it's actually a male or a female uh, genetically. 
because it could be a female who's just had certain right. hormone abnormalities oh, and they form the phallus, but it's actually, they have no testes, they have ovaries. So that's a whole different thing. And there are certain fatal conditions that are associated with, with that finding that have to do with abnormalities in the adrenal glands, which make cortisol. So if you see a newborn with no testes, you have to do certain blood tests to make sure that they don't have this adrenal gland abnormality or they'll be dead within like 24 to 48 hours. Wow. Is, it, is that a common a, occurrence? It's, it's rare, but all pediatricians... What's rare? And, one in a thousand? Oh, no. I would say it's more one like one, one in a in hundred thousand. Okay. That's rare. But it's so, it's so vitally important to pick up that... Um, all obstetricians and pediatricians know to look for that find. They always know to check for bilaterally or at least unilaterally descended testis um, to make sure that that's not a possibility. That's another topic. So cryptorchidism, um, what was the question you asked? If, um, oh, sh if they're not down, might they come down? The answer is yes, but the answer is when you have a newborn that has like a missing testis, They'll refer them to a urologist, and then you as a urologist have been taught, and I remember when I did that rotation as a resident in pediatric urology, you, were, you get taught how to try to identify that undescended testis. Like, it may be up in the groin, and it just hasn't come all the way down. Like, mm -hmm. it may be almost down. You, but mean, hasn't, you mean locate, not identify. Right, it. so you want to locate it, correct. Okay, so you would use this sort of like an oil or a slippery gel, like a lubricating gel, and you'd put it on their abdomen, basically. And at the lower part of their abdomen, you'd kind of slide your hand down, oh, pushing to, on their to push skin to see if you could feel it under your hand. You wouldn't necessarily milk it down, but you might feel a little bump as you slide your hand down the skin this as is, you're pushing. Again, a newborn. And if you feel the bump, you've just made the certainty that they actually have a testis. But if you can't feel the testis, now you have true cryptorchidism. If you feel the testis, then you would say this is an undescended testis. It's a it's in a groin location. And then the question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you, you could wait a certain period of time, like six months. I forget. There's a limit. Maybe it's a year to see if it does come down. But at a certain point, you're supposed to bring it down, and that's an operation. That's an operation where you bring the testicle down. And it's actually a complex operation because all those structures that it's attached to, the arteries and the nerves, they're not long enough. So how do you make them longer? It's a whole technique to do that, to, to make them stretch. And there's and make so them many. So that's a tricky operation. Um, but what if you can't feel it or you can't find it? And also, why is it so important to bring it down, aside from the cosmetics? I would think the production, like what it's supposed to do, it's, it needs to either be cold or, I mean, or hot. It's no, you're right. It actually has to be lower than body temperature. Right. So well, that's why it's on the outside. Right. And then, well, you then want it, the, the it moves around. You don't around, want it to die either. So if they're at 98.6, which is our body temperature, you, your sperm production that's is That's what I mean. Great. It's just not going to do what it's supposed to do. But in truth... When testes are undescended, most testes that are undescended, the higher they are, like if they're in the groin versus they're up in the abdomen or inside the abdomen, where do your testes come from? Where do they form when you're an embryo? I don't know. Temecula? What's that? <laughs> Temecula? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. They actually form up where your kidneys are. That's where they form. Okay. So the arteries and the veins of your testicle. So so think about the um, think about the kidney for a second. It's way up in your back, right? And there's one artery and one vein for your kidney, right? And those and then what's that big artery and vein that goes down the abdomen from top to bottom that everything plugs into? What's that called? The artery and the vein in your abdomen. GB, take this one. Vena cava? The vena cava or vena cava, that is the vein. Nicely done. And the artery one? People form aneurysms in it. The aorta? Aorta. So the aorta is. I thought is that the, was just up at the yeah, heart. Yeah, the aorta goes, it, it, for, it starts when it leaves your heart, goes down your chest, and then down your abdomen. Okay? And everything, like your intestines, get. Uh, the arteries go to your intestine, right? So all these arteries come off. That's like the trunk of the tree, right? Yeah. And the ones that go to the kidneys 
are really short because the kidneys literally sit just to the right and just to the left of those big vessels. So that, that artery to the kidney is maybe one inch. Hmm. And that vein from the vena cava is also like one inch, right? You would think that the testicle artery and vein would just go from your testicle and kind of dive, like maybe go up the groin and go straight to the artery, straight to the aorta and straight to the vena cava, right? No, those arteries, those single artery and that vein to the testicle travel up your groin, up your abdomen, behind your intestines, and all the way up to where your kidney is. And on the left side, it actually, the vein goes into the, the vein inside, to, it inserts into the vein of the kidney. Does each testicle connect to the corresponding kidney? Yes. Actually, yes and no. They, they don't connect to the kidney. Um, you, I mean, to those veins, though. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that the, the, the vein for the testicle travels from the testicle in your scrotum up the groin into your abdomen and then kind of courses to the back behind your intestines, travels up in front of your back muscles. And on the left side, that vein plugs into the kidney vein. On the right side, that vein plugs directly into the vena cava, but up where the kidney is, not down like in your pelvis where you would think. So why are those veins so long? And same with the artery. The artery comes off the aorta where your kidney is. Not where, like, your pelvis... You would think that your, the, the artery for your testicle would, would emerge from the aorta down where your pelvis is, but that's not true. It emerges from the, arter, or the aorta up where your kidney is. And why is that, based on what I just told you? Based on what you told me? I, I, I was just thinking... To, where, your, where do your testicles form? By the kidney. So that's where so those arteries form. Come down. Okay. That's where those arteries. So those arteries then have to grow, and it lengthens yeah. all the way until your testicle gets down to your scrotum. So they're really long arteries and long veins. It's kind of interesting. Do you see now, that? If this is such a complicated surgery, we can do without one testicle. So do you do this just so that's because a, that's later a good in life, quest- like you want to be, you're hedging bets here. You want to make sure they have the option later. So y- you would think that's one reason, but in truth. Even if your testicle just makes it down to the groin, like, you know, that area, you know what I mean by groin, right? Yeah. It's like above your, your scrotum, kind of to the right and the left. You've got like the, where your thigh meets your, yeah, your where body. Yeah, the hip labrum is. Right, right. So that's your groin right there, right? Like where guys get hernias and stuff. Mm. So sometimes the undescended testis is sitting inside that kind of fatty area. Even if it makes it to that point, which is like 80% of the distance from yeah, your kidney, it's not going to work. It's an abnormal testis. Even if you bring it down, it's an abnormal testis. It doesn't have the same, and it's probably going to be subfertile forever. It's so, never going to have the so right fertility. So why bother? There's two reasons. One reason is when you have an undescended testicle, whether it's in your groin or higher, it's always going to be highly prone to becoming malignant and cancerous, as oh. in testicle cancer. They're highly prone to becoming cancerous. Well, I, I was thinking you'd actually go in and, and remove it, not leave it I get it, that. Not leave it I alone. get that. But it's important that you know that. Um, the re, and the other th- issue is that they make testosterone. So you want to preserve it for testosterone production. That's a major reason. Okay. And not having testosterone is a big deal, especially during puberty, because if sure. you don't have But that can be dealt with medic, you know, through yeah, medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not I'm ideal. Just saying you could just give a guy shots and just take out the testicle and give him shots. No, it's not great. Yeah, yeah. So that's one reason. One reason we bring it down is so that they'll preserve testosterone production. The other reason is you want to be able to palpate it readily throughout their life. And you want them to be able to palpate it readily throughout their life. And they can't palpate it nearly as readily mm-hmm. as, as well as when it's in their scrotum. And the reason why you want to be able to palpate it is because you want to feel if there's any tumors. Check for lumps, yeah. Okay. So in this case, the guy who called, I know this is a long, drawn-out <laughs> explanation, but he can't even feel it in the groin. So it, it seems like it must be in the abdomen or it didn't form. But does this mean they didn't make this assessment 16 years ago when he was born? Yes, correct. Somebody missed it. I'll say. His pediatrician missed it. Somebody didn't make a... I don't know. He I must mean, not have been board certified. I, I, You know, the only thing I can think of is... I, I'm not sure. You know, so, you don't know the whole story because I didn't see the kid. 
there may have been explanation. Maybe he was from a third world country right. and he never got it. And he's emigrated here. And I don't know what the story is. But the point is, if you get that kind of referral, and I'm not a pediatric urologist, which is why I basically advise that they go to a pediatric urologist. But the pediatric urologist has to be sure of what? If the, if the doctor is saying it is a non-palpable he, test, He's got to be sure that it's there or not there. Correct. And why is it so vital, even though he's 16 and he's already going through puberty? Well, you, already, you already told us. Well, they the don't reasons. want it. If it is right. there, the then testosterone it could be. The testosterone and the cancer. The right. cancer is the, the bigger one at yeah. this point. The cancer is the biggest issue. Yeah. Yeah, so they've got it. How are they going to prove whether or not there's a testis? Uh, can right. it, a CAT scan or something? MRI? Sonogram? It's Probably. I'm actually not. I have to look up what the current guidelines are. I don't deal with this very much anymore. But when I was training. A uh, kick in the stomach? That when I was training, you had to explore them. You actually had to open them up or put a laparoscope it into the abdomen and find the artery in the vein. You can see a kidney stone on these machines. You're not going to see the well, testicle? Well, sometimes it's like literally a kidney stone lights up like a t Christmas tree because it's bright white because it's, it's so dense. But we're talking about maybe just a nubbin of tissue. That's not a Christmas tree I, I'm used to seeing, but yeah. Right. So, oh, so it not only did it... It may not so be, it could be well there, but visualized... But you're right. You, so like today's day, and, and imaging is really good today, and you're probably right. They probably can rule out whether there's testicular tissue. But you have to realize that all it takes is just a little bit of testicular tissue to become cancerous. So well, they got to be sure right. that that scan is yeah, accurate you, you enough. Could, you could that's do like a what 360. you're. No, but that's that's the fact that that we didn't realize that you probably took for granted, which is we're imagining a full testicle that's up there that someone missed. But you're saying it's just. Some it a could beginning be of a, a cluster tissue. of, I mean, I don't know about a cluster of cells, but like, you know, something the size of a pea. Right. Yeah. And it's tissue. It's not yeah, a yeah. stone. So, so it may not show up very well. But that still is, yeah. But that could become cancerous. So yeah. I don't know what the guidelines are today. But when I was training, we had to put either a, we, we would usually do a laparoscope. You know what a laparoscope mm -hmm. is. Yep. Into the abdomen. And the first thing you would do is find the artery in the vein, the, the testicle, yeah. and then you'd follow them down right. and yeah. see if they're blind ending. That makes sense. And in fact, now that you've explained all that, I would think I would want to insist on that because yeah. that's the only way you're going to know 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's cryptorchidism. Huh. It's kind of an interesting topic. So the other thing we were going to talk about um, to round this out was, and it was something I, I brought up to ask you, Doc, was, it's been an Ozempic has been in the news a lot. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And, and we um, yes. no, no, it's all good. We uh, and it's been talked about in the morning show. It seems in fact, you know, something is is on people's minds when it seems like every day, you know, the Today Show or Good Morning America's got some new take on on Ozempic and what it you know, what to do if you're on it and should you and all these things. But um, it just it means it's. You know, it's in the conscience. Well, well, can we take a step back? Is this truly the miracle drug for weight loss that it's purported to be? Well, I, I think that's a worthwhile question, but let me just set up my the, the topic in general, which is it's it's an it's meant for people that are diabetic or pre pre diabetic. I, I think you'll correct me on that. But and which, but it's the off label. I'm pretty sure it's only indicated for diabetes, not pre diabetes. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's maybe a little loophole people are using, like could be pre-diabetic, but really they're just maybe a little overweight, which is the off-label use, which is people are now taking it because it curbs an appetite, and you'll tell us probably more about how it works, but people are losing weight on it is the bottom line. And there's a lot of potential issues. You're going to need to be on this thing forever because a lot of people have said they come off it, and... Within a few weeks, the appetite is raging again, and so and there, it's too early to say what long-term effects it would have. And I was just curious your thought, um, your thoughts on it from a medical side as to um, what have you seen or what do you think of an off-label use like this that is potentially, you know, someone's going to be on it for as long as they possibly can. If it's working for them, they may never want to get off it, and it's off-label. It's not the way it was designed originally. You know, part of this discussion gets to whether or not you really believe in the scientific method, which may sound funny, but in today's day and age with lots of, you know, with, with all the information we get, like on TikTok, and, you know, I'll go on some of these types of 
apps and websites and hear whether it's, uh, you know, uh, YouTube or whatever. And I'll hear what appear to be like maybe it's a, what looks like a reputable doctor spouting about something they know works great. And they should, you know, you should all be using this diet or this supplement or this lifestyle and you're going to be great and you're going to live till you're 100 even though there's no science behind what they're saying. There's no studies, but they're very convincing, and they have a whole practice of people who do it. And I think there are lots of doctors themselves out there who believe in what they're saying, and there's even more hundreds of millions of people, maybe not hundreds, but tens of millions of people who believe what they're saying. So wh- the first thing we have to but decide on... But this is more on, than just a supplement. People are right, saying right, something no, about it. Right, right. No, but my point is, is that part of the pushback, what this is really about... Well, let, let's divide it into a couple of topics. First, let's just talk about diabetes, and then we'll talk about obesity, and then we'll talk about vanity, because those are the three topics about Ozempic. It gets down to diabetes, obesity, which may or may not be associated with diabetes, right. and the third topic is vanity. Okay? And, so, and to be clear, Ozempic is one brand name drug. Right, there's there's Wagovi, a few. Right. There's some other ones. And to be clear, the way the drug, in a very basic way of understanding is that it not only can suppress your appetite, it will slow down gastric emptying. So when you eat oh, something right. like in the morning, you're kind of feeling full you all feel day. feel full, yeah. Yeah, you're just not going to want to eat. So, and, and, and some people it has, you know, it can be as, um, as subtle as losing like maybe 10 pounds if you're like a, you know, 190 pound person. To I know one person who's taken it and they've lost a hundred pounds wow. and they were like two hundred and fifty and now they're one fifty. So percentage wise, so I've also it, heard it, that it varies. That it helps wow. with some alcohol addiction that people have had. That there's I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean well, I just don't know. It's interesting. That may be true because it's having that effect. Um, addiction is a strong a, word. I'm not a, talking about it's alcohol. It's a game it's changer for di- for non-insulin dependent diabetes. It's a game changer, meaning that the People who treat non-insulin-dependent diabetes, who I've spoken with, namely endocrinologists, this is, it's, I'm not going to say it's a holy grail, but it's a huge game changer because most of these doctors are trying to get something called the hemoglobin A1C down, which is the measure in your blood. It's it's actually how much, um, it, it, hemoglobin is the oxygen carrying, um, uh, protein in your red blood cells, right? Hemoglobin. We've all heard of that. But it turns out that, if I remember this correctly, um, some sugars can bind to that hemoglobin over the long term. Actually, I think what it is is that A1C is a form of hemoglobin that um, develops if your, cro- if your sugars are chronically elevated for a long period of time, to, and to what extent. So in short, hemoglobin A1C is a long-term measure of your sugars. So it's one thing to just wake up in the morning, don't eat or drink, have the doctor draw your blood, and find out what your spot glucose is, your, your sugar is at that moment. Maybe it's, you know, anything over 100 is considered elevated in a fasting glucose. Maybe it's 130 that day or 140. But then the next day you do it and it's 180. And then the next day you do it, it's 240. And the next day you do it, it's back to 120. What's the long to over three months? How is your sugar doing in a three-month period? That's what the hemoglobin A1C. So it's a long-term measure. And I think, and I forget how these numbers are, but something like over 6.0, I think, is considered diabetes. So, and over like eight or nine, you're starting to become insulin dependent. Now you need to be injecting insulin. And they've been using oral medication to control these people for hemoglobin A1C, but a great number of them progressed to insulin dependence. Uh, I'm sorry, in, yeah, to becoming insulin dependent, meaning they have to inject insulin. And it's just a very hard disease to control. That's the bottom line. Um, and this. Ozempic has really changed that. Now everybody's hemoglobin A1C is coming down, um, and in a meaningful way, and in and in a uh, durable way, staying down. Um, it almost sounds like the the cholesterol drugs that came out fifteen yeah. years ago, yeah, twenty years it's ago. Kind of like that. Yeah, it's kind of like that. So I think it's a you know most of the endocrinologists, all the endocrinologists I've talked to have said it's a game changer, and they're extremely excited about it. Um, 
And so to me, it's a no brainer, you know, and I think this is where we get into those. The first thing I was talking about with doctors or people, lay people saying like, oh, come on, is diabetes. You go on like, you know, YouTube or TikTok or any of these. And there's always reputable or what seem like reputable people saying, if you just follow my diet and my lifestyle, diabetes is made up, doesn't exist. Hmm. There's tons of people out there saying that doesn't exist. It's just about how you eat and your lifestyle. And that's not what the scientific method tells us. The scientific method, meaning research, studies, over ten, you know decades and decades, tell us it's not about lifestyle and about habits. I mean, to a degree, your habits can exacerbate the potential of diabetes, for sure. But ultimately, um, you know, you can't stop it. I mean, at least once you're diagnosed with it. You could argue that people who grow up and are on like high carb high sugar diets right. their entire lives sure they're they're positioning themselves to develop this but once they develop it your your islets they're called islet cells those cells are not producing enough insulin in from your pancreas so this drug is going to basically allow you to continue your life and not be ravaged by the damaging effects of having chronically high sugar in your body so for those people, it's not just curbing their appetite. It's actually affecting this, this uh, blood. It's, it's reducing your need for insulin. And some of that is because of your diet changes, for sure. You're not taking in as much, so you don't need as much insulin. So you're not, you know, you know. And then there's other, I don't know well, and I'm not versed enough in it, but there are other effects of the drug that, um, you know, your body also makes sugar. Sure. Like glucose is actually being manufactured by your body. You're not just eating sugar. You actually create sugar in your cells, in your body, and these drugs also shut that process down Hmm. and push it more towards, like, you know, storage and not being released in the bloodstream. So for the person that has no, no diabetes whatsoever... Okay, and so they're just they're obese. Not even. So they're they're a normal body. I mean, they're, they're o- not obese. obese. They're not I, overweight. Maybe clinically obese. I don't know. They're 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 overweight by ten pounds. Is what I'm saying. Right. And they just would like to Shed get to bikini pounds. season. Right. Right. That that and I and agree is a little controversial. I mean, I think well, I'm not even suggesting it is or isn't. I mean, I they're am. they're doing it. They're taking it for that reason. Yeah. Are there major repercussions for them? Or? Only that once they stop it, they're going to... So, so the person who's a diabetic, it's a no-brainer because they're always going to be a diabetic. Yeah. I mean, there's arguments no, to be made that there are some that. people who make drastic changes in their diet can sometimes reduce... Like, for example, when they do these like gastric bypass operations yeah. on obese people who are diabetics, they'll lose their weight, and a lot of times their need for their diabetes drugs will diminish and sometimes completely resolve. It is true. So meaning that like by starving the person, right. they may not be diabetic anymore. And it's, it's somehow, true. even that surgery, some those people seem to gain weight again. Some of them. Some of them do. Because that's where I'm going. Because the reality is, as much as you want to sort of criticize the obese person and say, come on, you just need to have a little more willpower. Or you just have to have more control over your habits. Yeah, well that's not fair. It's all the research has shown that it isn't. That is not really true. Their cells are are genetically they're, inclined, they're right? Genetically prone, yeah. to forming more fatty tissue, and right. it's it's all part of the their DNA, right? And so that's why I think people who are obese, and I'm not talking about the ten pounder, but I'm talking about moderate to severe obesity, even if they're not diabetic. I support the idea that these people be allowed to be treated with these medications. So, so what even if it means they're going to be on those medications for the rest of their lives, because the nature of their obesity alone is so potentially dangerous to their longevity that it's worth being on one of these drugs indefinitely. That's so, what I think. So even if they're not diabetic. Well, the health benefits of them losing all that weight are, are massive throughout Correct. lots Correct. of other reasons. And I think it's a hell of a lot better than making them go through, like, gastric bypass surgery. Right. So what's the deal with the shortage of the drug, and for that matter, other drugs as well these days? Is that still something I think happening? that's just a matter of, like, it's new, and as, as Jay was saying, it's starting to 
it's it's now filtered into the um into the vanity market. So people who are ten pounds over, you know, you're a celebrity and you've got to look, you know, you got you're a woman, you've got to look the one hundred and fifteen pound body the and magic, if you're yeah. up to one twenty five, you you go but, on this drug. So but but what's that, the difference between And so they're swallowing up a lot of the supply literally. so that the so that the the other folks that really need it are finding it difficult to get but it. But hold on, you said there's two drugs. You said there's Ozempic and Wegovy. So right, Ozempic right. is a, a, a diabetes drug that also you can lose weight on. Is Wegovy also a diabetes drug, or is that just a weight loss drug? No, I think they're both no, indicated for diabetes. Yeah, they're both as far as I different, know, both different manufacturers, yeah, but yeah. both di- they're both indicated for diabetes. FDA approved for diabetes, and they're both they both have to be prescribed. I mean, if you want an indicator of how incredibly pivotal this has been in the industry but but both this says wait, hold on gb that ww and jenny craig have both changed their entire business model yeah well they're they've changed their brand to ww oh, it's ww yeah but they that, that's that's what that's what they were but they, the, they are they've bought weight watchers or ww bought a medical i think they're a, a pharmaceutical company basically and they've they've gotten rid of most of their centers all that all those meetings are, have been reduced. Those, they're closing all over the place because they're doing it all. They, they've realized that people that used to seek out weight loss in more conventional forms are not, they're not convinced anymore. They, 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 want, they want the pills. And so they've gotten headfirst into that industry. Jenny Craig is closing, I think, all of their storefronts. I didn't know that. Um, they're, they're doing online meals and stuff like that. But the point is, it has been a massive shift. So the demand for this from an off-label usage is is here to stay. But, but here's this is Wagovi.com. Wagovi is an injectable prescription medication for adults with obesity, BMI greater or equal to 30, or overweight, excess weight, BMI greater than 27, who also have weight-related medical problems. Yeah, so they're literally. I don't know if they're that's marketing. FDA approved though. That may be what they're they're reporting, but I don't know if I don't think insurance actually. That's what it is. They can say that, but mm-hmm. insurance companies. Will only do what's um, yep. what's not what's considered scientifically proven, and even though you could say, well, the weight loss is scientifically proven, if you try to get it approved through your insurance, they're going to basically say this is only approved for diabetes. Right, and I mean that they're literally marketing the off-label use in there in that. That's so you can you can prescribe it for obesity, but. You can look it up and ask ask your phone if uh, you know go on Google and say is Wagovi FDA approved for the treatment of obesity and I'm pretty sure it won't be. Yeah, and, and the cost is um, jeez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the cost of this is is big for people that don't have it prescribed. Uh, for right, it's like four hundred bucks a month or something. Yeah, so then it becomes you know only that, for the rich. Well, yeah, for life you. Yeah, that, for the rest that, of your life. That adds up. Now, you know, it'll come but down. But I probably, think it's going to, yeah, it's going to come down, and then there's going to be other companies that are going to come out with it. Generics. And I think eventually the FDA will approve it for obesity. Okay, so what they're saying is it's approved with at least one weight related condition, such as high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, or high cholesterol. Yeah, right. it's, it starts to get tricky. Right, because I'm a that. candidate. Because pres- the doctor in that case is prescribing it for diabetes. But right. they're really taking it for the weight loss. Right. Right. It's um it's an interesting it's a fascinating thing. I know field. the insurance, I know that for because I have patients that take it for obesity and they and, and they're not they're they're pre diabetic, for example, and they have high blood pressure, but they can't get their insurance to approve it. Are these uh, injections or are these pills? Injections. And you do it yourself, you have to go to the doctor. You do it yourself. Yeah. What do you do with the needle when you're done? It's supposed to, you're supposed to like take it back to the pharmacy. There's like a little disposal mm. kit that it comes with, and you take it back to the pharmacy, and they dispose it. Hmm. I, in a in sort of a related topic about off-label use, I I was curious what you thought about this. I saw that dentists are now approved to give Botox. Did you did you read this? Nope. Yeah, it's um, they're they're using it to um, for what are considered dental conditions like lip lines, uh, wrinkles on the face, but you know it was never it was never done. Um, 
I don't think it was approved through. Yeah, they're getting. I mean, dentistry is one of those things where it really does or can cross the line between you know functional impairment versus you know vanity right. issues. Right. Because it's the used for TMJ. I mean, right. You can imagine because right. it's a nerve issue, right, with Botox. Right. So, but they're officially approved to use it, and I'm telling you, it's going to be just. Oh yeah. Right around the corner where dentists are going to turn into. You know, like dermatologists of yeah. the lips and the mouth, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe they'll probably yeah. be able to do it around your eyes and your forehead and everything else. You go I'm to your sure de- you're right because dentists are always looking for another other uh, forms of income. Yeah, they are always yeah. pushing something. Yeah. Anyway, well, well, that was interesting today, guys. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, GP. Thanks for <laughs> subscribing. <laughs> Um, please do write us with your questions. Mail, M-A-I-L, at twomenandadoc.com. We're always happy to take those. Or just compliments for uh, GB. There you go. We'll take those as well. Always. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Good to see you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And, um, you know, have a good week. Thanks, guys. Thanks. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience, but if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.